0: You're listening to this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast. That's Kyle. That's are you the host? Sean. Are you the host? You are the host today, given that you are the uh, sole interviewer during our, during our main segment later. Yeah,
1: I was watching CBS this morning, uh, and I wanted to try something new.
0: A hard-hitting interview expose. CBS, was, is that the show that Michael Strahan announced he's switching to? No, that would be GMA. Good morning, America. So, <laughs> this was not. CBS pl- this
1: morning is what you watch while you contemplate the end of your life.
0: So true story. And while we're talking, I'm going to look up this actual text message that I received this week. Um, so I was driving to, to uh, north of Boston and then west of Boston for a couple meetings this week. And uh, my wife, Teresa, who's a big Michael Strahan fan sent me a text without really any context and was totally serious with, and it said the following, I think Michael Strahan made a major mistake. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I know she, she's, she's concerned that he, uh, his role on GMA is too serious and that, uh, it's not going to give her the daily dose she's looking for. Anyhow, <laughs> That's how Thursday started for me. So, how you been? (laughs) Uh, It's been good. Yeah, you're traveling this week, right?
1: Yeah, I'm going to the big city, Austin, Texas. Going to keep it weird down there. Eat some barbecue. Eat some Tex-Mex. You're going for the whole week? The whole week, yeah. So, what is that, four nights? Yeah, it's pretty funny. I've been, like, planning some dinners for the team, like, and uh, a lot of places are like, yeah, we can seat you outside in our patio. I'm like but like it'll be like cold or like maybe it'll rain. And both of those things are so off chance that nobody cares, dares to think of them, I guess down there anymore. So yeah, it's probably not going to be cold
0: and probably not going to rain.
1: Yeah. My my new England, my new England mentality of outside like at any time, but like August 1st through 15th is absolutely insane
0: (laughs) at night. I feel like I need to go to Austin with someone that really knows Austin because i've been there a decent number of times now yeah. and i kind of always come away unimpressed
1: the problem i find is that all like the cool stuff you, you like you said you got to know somebody who knows the place or you got to like wait in line starting at 5 a.m. to get good barbecue like from the place
0: you know well, i sort of wondered every time i went there if it was a place where you actually needed to know someone or if it was kind of just a typical college town which is just overrated because it's college town um, I don't know, but it seems like it probably shouldn't be because a lot of the reason that it's rated favorably is not because it's a college town. And w- when a place is a college town, take like, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, which I did live in, which I can absolutely say is overrated. Um, you know, the reason it's overrated is people are just remembering fondly that period of their life and is sort of ascribing, you know, uh, dorm parties to the city. But I think Austin, I think that they're bigger than that. Yeah, I think so. But I, you know, I don't know. I've never had the right host or I've never done the right research to really get the full experience. So next time I'm there, I I will take, uh, I will take um, hosting services from anybody that listens that, that may be interested in proving my past experience wrong. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So I'm recording away from the frogs today. I can tell it's weird a little bit. Uh, Well, it was kind of getting late (laughs) because I delayed the uh, start while I watched the end of the Celtics game today. And uh, it probably wasn't too cold in my usually recording spot now, but it would have been by the end of the, the show. So I went down into my, uh, other recording location, which is, uh, silent, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which one would think would be the usual recording location. Yeah, you need to like get an aquarium or whatever, a terrarium, put some frogs in there. Well, I mean, this recording location is, is, uh, closer to children, who are usually loud, though it's uh, late enough that they are, or they they should not be. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, so I, I hosted a party at my house yesterday.
1: No, I'm a little bit disappointed based on what you've said, but
0: I feel like we both had our little fun time. <laughs> and, well, I, it relates to the frogs. So I I don't usually swear, and I'm not going to swear now. But it's I like to name things, especially this year. I've gotten into it. So like, if I'm going to throw a party or I'm going to do something, I'm going to figure out some like proper noun name for it because I feel like it's more fun that way. Um, so this was the, uh, the first annual frog bleep, uh, in for the kids, it was the, uh, the hop hump, <laughs> it was the first annual hop hump, uh, because the, uh, the frog singing and mating peaks this week, which, you know, it's not like it's necessarily this week every year, but you can tell looking out my window once the, once the, uh, water is like thrashing around in the pond and there are like, <laughs> thousands of frogs in there at the same time. Uh, that's the week. So we've decided that's like our spring has sprung uh, party event of the year. Wow, pretty fun. You know, kids. There are a lot of kids there, and kids like frog screwing. Apparently, I <laughs> uh, did not know. Well, I mean, also known as like tackling, or they're playing leapfrog, or look at the baby on the back. There are many, many euphemisms that were not said as euphemisms. But
1: wow, mm-hmm. man. I, I got my game. I don't have any like,
0: amenities like that at my house. Well, that's not true. So I went to a party at your house recently to uh, to open or what is it, inaugurate, commemorate. Yeah, I don't know. Christen, we, we broke a bottle of champagne on it. Christen, I think, to christen the Monster Castle package two loaded in your backyard yeah he got a swing set for his birthday this year, like <laughs> his first birthday. I didn't even connect that that was the uh that there was yeah. a relationship between yeah yeah anyway. yeah a bunch a whole bunch of family
1: members had to go in with us and we bought a swing set for him uh it's pretty amazing, yeah, I mean there wasn't any frogs or anything though I mean no. it was a pretty cool I mean, swing set
0: and you do have a lot of frogs close to you, just not quite as close,
1: yeah, they haven't been uh too crazy, honestly this year Hmm. So I don't really know. Yeah. So what are you doing down in Austin? um github does mini summits for teams uh twice a year roughly and so this is our spring version we'll do another one in the fall but it's basically a time for the team to get together in person and um since we've added a bunch of new team members we can meet each other uh a good chunk of us uh but then also just sort of plan the next you know six months or so talk about what's going well what's not that all that sort of stuff uh in person
0: uh should be good um we little... are the meetings? Actually, like, are they in a hotel? It's at <laughs> the
1: AT and T Executive Training and Conference Center and hotel.
0: Got it. oh, is that where you're staying? Also, yes. <laughs> wow, it's going. Git um, GitHub's going straight corporate at this point. <laughs> uh, the problem ends up being that uh,
1: we've hired a lot of people in our office in San Francisco can't always sustain everyone simultaneously, and so we end up just picking a place that can we can all go to, and it just kind of turned out that this was like you know turnkey I think
0: do you look forward to these sorts of events oh yeah I love them yeah seems yeah. Like kind of right up your alley to me
1: yeah I mean you know I think that Working remote is great when you have a clear idea of what you need to be working on, but figuring out what you want or need to be working on is not something done well remotely, in my opinion. I feel like it's a lot faster and more productive to do it in person. Even video chat, I don't think, does a particularly good job of that. And so I look forward to these because it's like the most tactical planning that I'll have uh, usually each year is at, at these little mini summits. And... You get a lot more context around the people that you're working with day to day, you know, so you feel a lot more comfortable when something goes awry, you know, because you've spent, you know, five days together, four days together, had meals and the whole nine yards. So um, I think it's a big part of making remote work for me personally. I mean, I can go see people and go to the office and go to conferences, but um, getting the team together is like a huge win, I think.
0: I had a, that meeting up of, north of uh, Boston was with a team that I work with uh, pretty regularly. And I think I was there for, it was a pretty short day, like maybe four hours, because I just drove up for the day because some people happened to be there that I wanted to meet with. And I think of the four hours, three hours and mm, 35 minutes were just bullshitting. You know, we're just uh, having fun getting to know yeah, people. Yeah. And that was the entire point. There was you know twenty five minutes that could have easily been done by phone, but it's helpful to have those kind of moments to lean back on when, uh, you know, when when things get tougher down the road, or when you need to ask someone a favor, or vice versa, or whatever.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it's the only way to make it work, really, for, in my opinion. I mean, teams that work primarily remotely but don't get together even on a team level, you know, like the company level is less important to me. Uh, but the team level is super important, so I, I i don't really i don't really see how it works, you know. Uh, to at least not get together once a year or something, uh, depending on w- w- sort of how quickly priorities change. I think twice a year is good. Maybe getting closer to quarterly is a little bit better, but I think it totally depends. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of travel, and it depends on the team size too. I think. You know, it was like this like weird sweet spot between having a very small team and a, like a quasi larger team where, you know, it doesn't matter how often you get together when you have, you know, 10 or 12 people in a room, um, just because it's that's a lot of opinions, presuming you're, you know, letting people vote, you know, in air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I think that. The more you can get together without taxing the team with unnecessarily tra- unnecessary travel, uh, you know, the the better. Just 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 for the social stuff, to be honest, is is huge.
0: Yeah, I think um, so too. So you guys go out every night, I assume, to some good meal and
1: yeah, yes. Yeah. So we have uh, dinners planned for each night, um, mm-hmm. and then you know sometimes we'll go out. Sometimes there'll be some sort of like activity plan that's optional, that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, meals meals are huge. I think that's where most of the sort of understanding happens. You know, yeah, because not everyone wants to go out at night. Not everyone wants to go to you know a bowling alley or a bar or whatever. But bowling alley. Like sometimes it's f- like sometimes I really love to do these like totally weird like things while we're places. You know, like another team that was there went and did. Uh, one of the design teams went and did like screen printing t-shirts while they were in Austin, uh, because they're designy, and, yeah, sure. uh, you know, like, I feel like that's like a really fun social activity to do with people and get to know better. But it's like when the neighborhood moms go to like the, you know, the, paint the birds on campus class. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we'll have a good time. Yeah. I'm going to eat so much barbecue. None of which requires me to wait in lines because I didn't plan far enough in advance for that. (laughs) (laughs) I really want to go to Franklin Barbecue, which is like the barbecue place. Like I have their book and everything. But I just, I I can't, I can't, I'd have to like go down and book travel for a whole day just to have lunch there. That's too much for me. Not going to do that. Yeah. So we're going to a restaurant where you make a reservation and tell them I will be there. And then they just give you barbecue.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, so. if you're going to do the corporate thing, you got to do the corporate thing.
1: Hey, man. <laughs> Fine. <laughs>
0: Did you program much this week?
1: Um, yeah, uh a fair amount around uh I was going to actually ask you about this a little bit, like how much does it bother you that like the models in rails are so tightly coupled to the database? Like I feel like it was in vogue a while ago that you would like not you would try to build like an, a service or an object on a, a surface object or some sort of object on top of the model so that the model was only dealing with active record and didn't actually hold any logic so that way you weren't coupled like between your database access layer and you know the domain model uh or business logic uh object side of things uh do you like deal
0: in that at all or do you think that's just a whole waste of time like why bother no, I don't think it's a waste of time. I think it can be a waste of time. So yeah, my like medium length answer. So, um, I certainly don't, I'll kind of give you like the, what I, uh, and, and this is a good week to ask this cause I've just been having this conversation with some new team members like in the last few days about this very topic. So for me, um, it does bother me when tests e- even sort of independent of the speed impact, which, which would bother me by itself. But when the tests rely on sort of persisting active record instances in the database in order to perform, or they just do persist them, whether or not they depended on it is maybe an aside, but whether they do, or maybe they do because they depend on it, that bothers me a lot. Um, I I feel like it's... uh, it, then you're kind of testing two things, uh, you know, one, that the data is in the database in the, in the right way, and then two, that the instances work as expected, and then you just never know, hey, is it is it working because I'm depending on, uh, I'm sort of delegating certain feature, uh, responsibilities, like counting records to the database, or is it working just incidentally because it's in the database? So that bothers me, and I suppose that that means that the coupling of active record and the database sort of bothers me because it leaves open that issue that, without, you know, relatively tight code reviewing, it's, it's pretty easy to have something like a use count instead of size creep in, in certain situations or vice versa, depending on which one would be the problem. Yeah. Um, so that kind of bothers me. Uh, there is some tension for me around, um, whether or not you should have a model that handles, I'm going to call it the callbacks, you know, so, so for example, usually I call them actions. So let's say you have a model that represents some sort of noun, like a invoice, and then you're going to be able to, you're going to perform certain actions on the invoice. Say it has like a, um, it goes through a few states like sent or paid or, you know, editing or whatnot. And when it changes state, you want to, to do other things, but you sort of are, are wary of having all of those bundled into a, uh, into callbacks that could be difficult to, uh, to, to, reason about, or just, you know, maintain. I kind of like the idea of pulling that out into its own action, like a tender send or tender invoice, you know, tender pay or whatever mm-hmm. action. But then it kind of introduces some complexity and boilerplate. And then, you know, you're like, is this worth it? You know, yes. I think each of these objects are easier to reason about. And I like that I've pulled away from the sort of the database life cycle of the object f- to figure out what side effects are going to happen. But on the flip side, now it's like more complicated to describe to someone new how the whole thing works. Yeah. Um, which is a long way of saying trade-offs. There we go. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you win is, some, you I, lose some. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's, that's how I feel about it. That like there are clear wins in coupling the database and the active record model, uh, instances and there's clear cost. And then when you move away from that, you know, sort of into more, uh, uh, in, into smaller objects with more distinct responsibilities, then you've got a different sort of complexity. And I think it, I've got, so right now I've got m- multiple apps that approach this slightly differently, depending on how complicated the overall app is. And I don't know what my, takeaway is other than it's nice to know what those trade-offs are so you can try to pick the right call for each application
1: yeah yeah i'm working on a project uh where i i want to be very delicate around about letting active records sneak Mm into um what we're working on uh because there's no reason that this couldn't uh be a service down the road one uh but two uh, and kind of more important, I, we're really worried about, like, resiliency. And so resiliency uh, around, like, a database going down or not having access to our right database is quasi-difficult when you have when you need to deal with that everywhere that the model touches active record, instead of saying only dealing with it in the one place that you're actually going to query active record, um, you know, instead of, instead of putting that all into the model, having some other object on top of it uh, that, that, only allows database access in a single place uh but i i've sort of been worried around the exactly what you said is just you know the explosion of objects you know everything becomes a lot more testable and everything else but you also have you know a hundred objects which maybe is great uh but i've never worked in a project that did that forever you know it was always either like okay, this project's too old, there's no way we can go that way, we'll just do, like, this, that, and this, and that'll be it. Uh, But Or a new project where it starts off with the greatest of intentions, and then (laughs) reality strikes, and, like, you know, a single object only has a single, or each object only has a single responsibility, just does not exist anymore, so... uh, It's been interesting to me. I definitely feel the tension when it comes to the scale side of things. Like, when you're when you're dealing with all these concerns of you know this database might not be here anymore uh you know the, the cat i want to be able to cache this in a simple way while i'm going to call the database all that sort of stuff i just it, that's when i start to go oh it really sucks that like everyone can call the database everywhere in the application uh like you know or, or just like anywhere they want uh to I wish you could call it very specifically and then pass the objects around without their ability
0: in, in, in a sort of a mutable way. Um, well, well, I mean, one of this is my like weekly, uh, weekly plug of JSON API resources and API first architecture, which I still like so much. Yeah. Um, but, but I think it relates to this conversation in that it introduces sort of a new concept to a Rails app, which is the resource, which is a kind of a wrapper on top of the model that you can use to, I guess people would say like decorate the model with additional, um, attributes. And also you use it as the sort of gateway to querying that model and it's, and it's, uh, children or relationships and having the resource is actually kind of, uh, for me taken a lot of the anxiety away around the point you just made because, uh, I know that, you know, while it's true that within the applica- the you know, the Rails application that, you know, anyone can call anything, but that's always true anyways. So there's sort of no way yeah. around that yeah, 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 of the Rails app. But outside, you know, for the clients or for the integrations, they have like a very clearly defined interface for how to query against the the model that is kind of active record E but not literally the active record model and I kind of like that separation of responsibilities it's sort of it's worked for me yeah yeah um but I mean I would sort of be wary for what it's worth but you know for anyone that thinks they have the answer on this one I I wonder because I I've got I've, I've built enough apps now to to believe there is no answer on it
1: yeah. And I, I don't, I guess I don't really think there's an answer as much as there's just experience,
0: you know, like I did, yeah, what do you care about? More, more? You know, like, do you care more about, um, fewer things that are easy to reason about where you're like, well, it may be like a bit of a mess, but it's all in one place and it's my mess. Or you care more about these like independent little composable objects that are, are, that have way less going on that are easier to test and, but create a bit of a, you know, cobweb of, of, uh, of actors when the whole app's rigged up and, you know, it depends.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's fair.
0: We should, uh, we should thank someone for sponsoring the podcast. First up is dev bootcamp. Uh, are you thinking about becoming a software developer? Well, you should check out Dev bootcamp, the original short term immersive software development program that transforms those that are new to coding into job ready full stack web developers. You can learn front and back end web development, teamwork leadership skills uh and more in a rigorous and inclusive environment dev Bootcamp has several locations around the country and they're accepting applications now what do you think do you think they've got a location in austin what's your guess yes, yes. do you know that or are you just I
1: don't my like, guess is yes though
0: all right i'll finish the ad you look it up uh So you can visit, uh, you can do what Kyle's going to do and visit devbootcamp.com slash Ruby to learn more about their program. I've done so in the past, though. It didn't stick in my head whether or not they had a a location in Austin. But some things that I learned that I liked, uh, one, they've got a lot of people that have gone through the program, almost 2,000 at this point. The uh, the program is is set up in a pretty smart way. I think there are nine weeks of remote part-time to kind of ramp you in, then nine weeks of on-site full-time that are more intense. And I think t- to Kyle's point sort of uh, about his trip to Austin coming up, uh, provide more of an opportunity to really build bonds both with, with other people and the instructors and in yourself as you kind of uh, get more intensely into the program. And then they've got one year, week of career prep to transition you from the bootcamp out into the uh, working world as a programmer. Uh, you can learn more about uh, the curriculum, about the uh, price for the, uh, the experience and uh, and about uh, dev bootcamp that again, dev bootcamp.com slash Ruby. So do they have an Austin location? Uh, yes, obviously. <laughs> Huzzah. All right. Back to the show. Uh, so back to uh, back to the original question about you've been programming much. So it sounds like you've been programming something new. That's always fun.
1: Yeah, yeah, new. I am uh, I am working on something new that is also old. Uh, it's not greenfield as they say. It's uh, quasi greenfield. I'm sort of trying to extract some platform
0: style functionality out of out of GitHub. Um, when you work you just, on a big app like Green or like Greenfield, like GitHub, uh, quasi Greenfield is is about as good as you can ask for. Though yeah, it's pretty great, actually. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> Let's kind of undersell the point here. Yeah,
1: no, no, no. So I mean, I, I'm hoping that as I just as I feel more confident with what we're doing, um, I should have a lot of good stuff to talk about uh on the podcast. Uh, so yeah, no, it's uh it's been it's been interesting, but most of it is basically around how do we make sure that you know. Um, GitHub remains reliable, and the you know folks that work on product features can still work very quickly, um, since Rails can help them work quickly. But doesn't necessarily care as much about you know how you're accessing the databases, where you're doing that. Are you calling you know are you making queries from views and blah blah blah? Mm-hmm. Which again, a lot of that can be solved by good code review, but not everything. And so. Uh, just trying to understand how to make it a little bit easier.
0: I've been doing more code reviews lately. It's very interesting. It had been a while since I had done so many as I've done in the last week or two, and uh, yeah, code reviews interesting. So, so what's your goal with code review? Is it to because I, I think there's sort of like a tension around uh, every pull request, and it's kind of uh, what would help this pull request versus, and these two things aren't necessarily in conflict, but they can be versus like what would help the programmer that is submitting the pull request in that sometimes there's a point that you could sort of spend needless time on, on a pull request that frankly doesn't matter all that much. It'd be fine if it went in as is, but that if you know the person, uh, or, you know, have experience with code from people that are in, have been in similar positions to them, you kind of know, uh, the, the risks inherent in approaches you see them use on a given pull request and how maybe this is like a opportunity to, to discuss those more so that they are thinking about them for future pull requests. So how do you approach it? Do you think more about just the here and now let's deal with each pull request kind of at the feature level, independent of who's submitting submitting it, or do you go the other direction and say, okay, every pull request is really an opportunity to talk about the consequence of programming choices and help the person kind of uh, continue to build.
1: I mean, I think it really depends for me on like the context of the pull request in who's working on it. You know, like if it's someone that's on my team and a project, I have a lot of context in, then I'm more worried about like the changes to the overall system in addition to the sort of coding and best practices and does this make sense? Will I be happy using this change? Um, is there a better way to do it? Uh, those very sort of in-depth pull requests are something that usually I only do if I have a large amount of context in the overall project. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm not getting like CC'd in, like, "Oh, Kyle, you worked on this two years ago. What do you think about this?" Like, odds are that at that point, I'm not going to be able to go, "Oh, well, if you do this, then it's going to make this work worse." And I don't think this is a good abstraction and all that. Like that level of conversation, usually, it's like do I see any obvious bugs here? Are there any obvious, um, conditions or, exactly. Race conditions conditions or, you know, just sort of bad, uh, syntax you know like anything that's just gross that's be, be, being done um that's on sort of the other end of my review process and so if it's if it's just like hey i need someone over here to look at this uh, odds are i won't be able to give it as good of a review just because i don't have my head in that project um, and so those will be a lot more sort of surface level. Like I'll look at the code, I'll read through it, I'll see how it touches the other systems and then give some review. Um, but if it's if it's something I'm working on or have worked on recently, uh, usually it's a lot more sort of structural as well as all the normal, like, you know, I wouldn't do it this way because of dot, 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 you know, and, and maybe give some code examples instead of just, you know, sort of going... This looks good. This doesn't look good. This does a problem. This doesn't have a problem. That
0: sort of Sort of stating the obvious, but it's it's hard work to do an effective or to to do effective code reviews in general.
1: Yeah, um, and I've been thinking too. Like, I don't know if this is just a symptom of where where I'm at, but uh, like on on teams that are slightly larger, you know, um, I f- like it's almost like I wish I were asked to do less because I think there's like an inherent fatigue in them you know like it's not like i don't want to do the work but it's like i feel like if you're doing 10 pr reviews a day you're probably not doing a good job of them it's just like i I feel like there's some number where trying to context switch across all those systems especially if they're not all on a single project you know that is of this in the same sort of area that becomes very difficult to to do well and so you end up doing less rigorous reviews which then potentially lets more bugs in and you know just becomes less uh less effective and so uh i i guess maybe not do less but find the best person to to do the review um the person that will already have the most context that's already nearby Um, and then making sure that that person isn't the only person probably reviewing your changes forever. You know, like if, if Sean and I, if you, if you and I were just working together on a project, like just having us review each other's code forever is probably not a great idea, uh, ultimately. But, uh, I, I, I've noticed that, you know, as the company has grown, having to review PRs has become a huge amount of work. Um, so I'd wonder if there's a way to fix that or if that's just sort of a consequence of a growing team.
0: You think you're good at it?
1: Um, I don't think I'm bad at it.
0: I, there, there are people <laughs> that's like that, my opinion of my programming in general.
1: There are people that I work <laughs> with better, a lot better than me. To yeah, me, you know, so it's hard for me to say. I think that I hate reviews that cover primarily syntactic crap. You know, and so I don't. I don't. I try. I, I try to make my reviews be pretty, like systemic you know if you do this what will happen to the overall like code base you know um and 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 so that usually takes a fair amount of time and so i do less reviews i i would think um but i don't know do you would do you think i mean now that you have a team working together on a single project
0: um do do you find yourself feeling good good about it or uh uh, I feel kind of like you said before, which is I, I think if I've got the energy to do a good job, then I feel good about it. Um, I think that they take um, maybe even more mental energy than programming. I think that for me, because yeah. with programming, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you don't have the, you don't have like the extra processing around what is this person trying to do and sort of translating their approach into, their intention, which, you know, and then, and then, uh, there's always going to be some loss in that, you know, interpretation. And then you've got the, the sort of, uh, you know, when, when you're writing uh, code, especially if you've got a style that's you know, relatively consistent, um, you know, you can be terse and direct to the computer, but you really can't be terse and direct to, your fellow programmer and get the outcome that you'd like. So, you know, not only do you have the cost of kind of the just interpretation of what they were trying to do and then thinking through any potential bugs, which while it's not entirely, that part's not entirely different than the programming side. I think with programming, at least I could rely on my sort of well-worn now TDD process to sort of reveal what I should be doing and kind of trying to apply that thinking on top of work that's already half done by someone that's doing it in a slightly different way than you would have done it. It's just, it's just effort. And, uh, and then to apply the effort to, you know, the extra effort to then communicate in a human way, kind of how to approach something, uh, which takes a a lot more finesse Mm -hmm. than does programming. Uh, you know, it just means that I have to be up for it and because I'm sort of always up for programming to some degree you know, like, like if I had two hours to work, if I'm, if I'm not exhausted, I can program fine. And I think that's mostly around the TDD workflow that I've got, that I, I feel like that, even if I'm a little bit tired, that's going to give me that kind of feedback that I need to keep going. Whereas when it comes to something like writing or code reviews or other things that that have uh, uh, a little more, I don't know, human sort of care required, I, I need to be in a, a more, um, a slightly different state of mind. So that was yeah. a long answer to a short question.
1: Yeah. No, I think you're right. I
0: think it'd be worth probably, I think we could probably even do a whole podcast about that, about code review. <laughs> yeah. Well, I it would be fun is, is, and I think that this would be possible from some of my code at least is just to take some, some c- kind of like comments on PRs and walk through them. Yeah. Just to see, okay, like how, know how far off the mark and may, maybe even establish a bit of a checklist on, you know, what should all code review attempt to accomplish? You know, it's going to be some sort of list like, you know, give the programmer both, the, uh, you know, the, the other person writing the code, both like the confidence and the context and the technical direction and the expectations they need to be successful or some sort of list like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And yep. if you have like a checklist and ran it against every, Set of comments that you created on pull requests. I I, I I bet that it would reveal that some number of those objectives are not being met that well. Yeah, in sure. comments. So anyway, so I, I mean, I, I guess I I enjoy it. I like working with people on programming problems. I just know that it's it's sort of its own unique sort of uh, meat space problem, more yeah. so than programming is. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I should tell you about our second sponsor today. Okay. Braintree is code for easy online payments. If you're building a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. Their V.0 SDK makes it easy to offer multiple mobile payment types. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, credit cards, and more all with a single integration. All it takes is one small snippet of code and you're all set up in less than 10 minutes. Plus Braintree offers quick, knowledgeable developer support. If you have any questions, to learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com rails podcast. So last like uh, introspective question before we transition to our uh, kind of exciting, uh, uh, I think first um, like interview punch out of the show. We're in this format at least. Yep. So if you had one co or skill rather, that you could improve right now, given the challenges you've got at work and the opportunities and whatnot, what would it be? Um, I've been thinking
1: about this a lot. Yeah, so I'll say uh, I think what I want to say is like systems thinking, but like basically when I see a problem, I can't always uh, model it in code effectively with like with with a certain amount of. Um, uh, forward thinking concern you know and so like right now when i see something i'm like all right i don't want active record to be through all this so i'm going to create this object and the object will then call active record um and then that object needs to relate to all the other objects around it and i don't do a good job of like not letting that sort of happen uh i could do that when it happens like uh, organically with a brand new project right uh, that sort of just uh, the, all the requirements are happening as it goes, but uh, when it comes to like thinking about how the system works when you're interacting with an old system, but building a whole new sort of like business logic, um, that's been pretty difficult. And so, uh, like, kind of surprisingly difficult. And so, uh, if I could improve on that, that would that would definitely greatly help me out in the next uh, the next couple months, <laughs> the next week. I would like this this week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like usually I would say like a human problem, like a human skill that I think would help, you know, uh, but I think for me right now, it's actually quite technical. Like I need, I need that. Um,
0: so I'll learn that the hard way. Uh, do you know someone, like, can you think of someone not, I'm not asking you to name them or anything, but can you think of someone that you work with that, that, uh, has that skill to a degree that you are aspiring to right now? Yeah. And I've
1: already sort of been like, Hey, you <laughs> help a brother out and <laughs> and, right. and help me like help me fact check my thoughts here and how you think about it, and so that's been great uh luckily, the company's so big now that there's almost anyone that you know you can find anyone who's great at something that you're not good at so um
0: so that's been good and that's a t- i mean it's a this is an interesting one to list because this is not an easy area to nail. I mean, because you could never get it perfectly right, right? There's no ultimate systems thinker, but, you know, it requires tremendous sort of concentration and cognition and and context.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a skill that's hard to practice, in my opinion. Like, definitely easier when you're working on new stuff, you know, like doing like... uh, how would you model this thing? You know, um, that's not as big of a deal, but when you work in a large like production app, it's, you don't always get opportunities to do this sort of thing. And so you get rusty at it one, but then two, knowing that you whatever you have to build has to work with the old system while still improving it to a large degree is, is, is difficult, you know?
0: So how do you manage the, the, the sort of uh, trade off between, um, Deciding to improve this skill yourself, like I'm going to get better at systems thinking, therefore I'll architect uh, solutions, you know, in a way that's more future proof, blah, blah, versus I'm going to uh, just get good at identifying that that's important and identifying a source of that capability and integrating them into the project, you know, the sort of delegate versus do it yourself.
1: Uh, for me, it's usually just about personal interest. You know, like if, if, if I'm bad at something and I'm not interested in getting better at it, if I'm lucky enough to be able to find someone that can do the job better than me, you know, then I'll just delegate. Um, if, if I'm bad at something, but I would like to get better at it because it's personally interesting, then, I'm, I'm happy to dive in, assuming it's not at a huge detriment to the overall project, right? Like, it's not going to make everything go way, way, way slower. Um, and then look for sort of, uh, you know, mentorship as I go. It's, we were actually having a conversation at work about this around, like, home projects. Like, things that you're willing to hire out for and things that you'd rather take the time and do yourself, you know? Uh, And I think it's the same thing as here. It's, it's for me, it's, it's, you know, personal interests is as much as uh, sort of ignoring the financial side of it to some degree. Um, Like, you know, if I'm, if I really would like to get better at that thing, then, then I'll, you know, I'll figure out how to build a wall so I can finish my basement. I'm way more interested in that than figuring out how to like effectively like fix drywall problems, uh, like that's something I don't have any interest in. I'd rather hire out, but building something out of wood is very interesting. And so I'm willing to sort of like flub my way through it, get some help from people who have more
0: experience, uh, and learn as I go. So uh, interesting aside on that. So this morning, a neighbor, uh, well, last night we had that party and at the party, it was revealed that our uh, dishwasher broke this week, which sucks. And, uh, um, so one of our good friends in the neighborhood, um, Robin, the, uh, the wife, it's a couple, uh, said, Oh, well, Chris knows what he's doing around, um, fixing dishwashers. He can come over and help you tomorrow. That kind of felt guilty. I'm like, Oh man, you know, now Chris is obligated to come help me. But I, at the same time, I was pretty excited about it because <laughs> I could use the help. And, uh, so we came over this morning and it took us like two hours to fix this dishwasher, but we were successful. And it turns out, uh, that, even something like fixing a dishwasher, which is to your point, pretty low on my list of things I'm interested in knowing. Um, if you add like hang out with a buddy for two hours, turns out I like doing it. Yeah, <laughs> I had a great time. <laughs> and uh, and and we fixed this dishwasher, which was surprisingly rewarding. And I kept thinking about it the same uh, the, the whole time, which is I don't know why I even hesitate about doing something like fixing a dishwasher because it's so easy. Like there aren't that many things going on. You just basically read the six things that it could be and like go through them and it's going to be one. And then you like, you know, just literally get your hands dirty. I think it's the little, literally get your hands dirty. That maybe is the (laughs) turnoff. So anyways, I think that, I think that topic around what do you want to get better at is, and I think your framing of it, uh, of the choice about, do you do it or do you just integrate you sort of outsource to someone else's skills? I think that was smart. It's probably the right way to think about it too. I think my problem or my, my, uh, it's either a problem or a strength depending on the moment, but is there aren't many things I'm not interested in learning how to do well, or I don't know, do well, do okay. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's not overstated. It. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but for you, I mean, clearly systems thinking would be high on the list for yeah. the kind of job of something one would want to get as good as possible. At. Yeah, for sure.
1: I have to re- uh, many, many things to report back on. If, if the first uh, almost year, I think soonish, I don't know, a while of doing the podcast uh, was primarily me talking not about what I actually do at work. I think now I can actually talk about what I'm doing at work, and it will be related to code. And so, welcome to this brave new. Ruby on Rails podcast.
0: Yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah. Your long intro has now come to a close. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, now that you know who I am, let, let me tell you what I do.
0: <laughs> uh, well, speaking of uh, uh, speaking of someone telling us what they do, we should transition into our interview. Yeah, so
1: uh, earlier today, I had a chance to speak with uh, Jay McGavran, who wrote uh, the book Head First Ruby. Um, and so let me uh, share that with you now. All right, for this part of the Ruby on Rails podcast, I have a guest who's not Sean. I have uh, Jay McGavrin, uh who's here to talk about his new book, Head First Ruby. Uh, hey, Jay.
2: Hi, I'm happy to not be Sean, or I apologize for not being <laughs> Sean, depending on your viewpoint.
1: No, no, no. I think you're right. Uh, you're right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Jay, I mean, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what's, your, what's your day job before we get into the book?
2: Okay, so day job. I work for Treehouse. Uh, Originally, I was with their engineering team helping maintain their code challenge infrastructure. So that lets you uh, do code challenges live in your browser, you type code in and it executes for you. I recently, however, switched to the teaching team. So I am their new Ruby teacher. That's awesome. Are you in Portland or Orlando or nope? A large part of their engineering staff is remote, and even some ah. of their teachers. So I uh, I am remote. The plan is that I'm going to fly to either Portland or Orlando as needed to be on camera, and my screencasting will be done at home.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I mean I had a great experience doing uh, a GitHub course for them uh, recently. Uh, for I guess for you technically, uh, <laughs> and that was, it was a lot of fun. It was uh, very different than doing the podcast uh, on on screen and um generally speaking we don't edit this podcast too much and so uh to go from sort of oh well we'll just sort of futz through it and be okay to nope that was wrong do it again nope that was wrong do it again (laughs) it was a very different experience for me
2: yeah and i edit the crap out of everything i do so doing it live (laughs) is the new experience for me so
1: awesome it's easier this way i trust (laughs) me once we get going um so yeah so i mean tell us a little bit about the book um i have some specific questions but uh you did the headfirst ruby book and headfirst is how would you describe its very specific brand of book
2: basically the goal is to save the reader time uh, it's to help uh uh you know it's it's not we don't bill ourselves as the four dummies series uh this is to help smart people learn the material even faster And did you
1: specifically have interest in doing like the headfirst style uh, book instead of say, I don't know, writing a book on your own, doing a blog post, doing one of the O'Reilly animal books.
2: I did. I was I was itching to do this because I discovered Head First back through uh, Head First Design Patterns. Uh, this was back uh, 2006 yep. or so. I just loved that book. Uh, it took a very complex topic and made it very easy to learn. And uh, it always bugged me that there was not a Head First book on the core Ruby language. Uh, there, there's been a Head First Rails book out for a while. Uh, that, that one's a little older. That came out in 2008, Uh, but there was nothing about Core Ruby, and uh, I just couldn't stand that. So eventually, uh, when I had an opportunity, I approached O'Reilly and pitched the book, and uh, to my great pleasure, they were cool with it. And if you
1: haven't, uh, if someone hasn't picked up one of the headfirst uh, books, uh, who would you say this is targeted to? Uh,
2: Ideally, it's going to be somebody who's used a programming language before. They're a little past the hello world phase, so they know how to use a text editor. They know how to use their terminal. But if they have that under their belt, then they are ready to go, and uh, this will teach them everything they need to know.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a copy of the book that you were nice enough to send over. And uh, what I found really interesting was when you were doing, um, anywhere there's code, there's like little scratch notes sort of as as you went around saying, this is a method, this is being called this way, this is being sent over here. Um, I find that to be a really interesting uh, teaching style because it's how it would seem that's how if we were together in a room how we would be teaching each other you right. know like say something and go oh in let me okay this is what this means and you move along instead of just sort of um, you know talking about it but what's that sort of process when you're writing a book uh, because generally I feel like if you were just to write this without all that it's you know uh, time consuming and effort but it's sort of linear in nature but when you sat down to write, you know, a section of the Ruby core library, and then you're going through and also putting in all these notes and these pictures and these illustrations and everything else. Like, what's that process like when you're actually sitting down to create the book? I
2: won't pretend it's
1: not a lot of extra
2: work because it is. But <laughs> uh, I really did. It was sold to me in the beginning when I logged, uh, when I started up with this process. Um uh, the um, co-founders of the series, uh, I had a lot of coaching from uh, Bert Bates and he talked a lot about a book called Efficiency in Learning by Ruth Clark, which basically summarizes all of the current research in um, in learning patterns uh, how, to, how to help learners learn more effectively and more quickly. One of the things, and this is just one of the many things that they cover in the book, is the importance of having annotations be close, physically close on the page to the thing that they're annotating. So if you're describing code, you want that arrow right there in with the code pointing to the thing it's mentioning. You don't say refer to figure 2b. No, you have your note right there within figure 2b.
1: And then as you sort of expand on it because there's all kinds of notes and annotations in this book and i i mean i love it because i'm i am the type of person that would sort of doodle generally and be like you know uh, if, if something new comes up that i don't really understand I, I draw a line to it go figure it out and then add a note so the next time i go through uh, it makes a bit more sense mm-hmm. but like with when doing that would you be creating the code first and then going back through and adding all these annotations like i'm really curious from like a content creation standpoint because i mean there's a lot of people that listen to the podcast that are new to ruby new to rails and there's also a lot of people that have been around for a while and are teaching people who who are new to this so i think even if the book doesn't necessarily um Uh, if if you don't need it because, say, you have enough experience that you're very comfortable with it, I think there's something really interesting here about just learning how to teach. Yeah. Uh, You know, because it's not just a wall of text like most uh, nerd books are.
2: <laughs> it is definitely a unique style. So you asked if I would write the code sample first. Definitely. Because if I'm building a skyscraper here, that's the foundation. The code sample has to be rock solid. It has to be bug free. And um, unfortunately I did discover a bug on one of the samples and I had to rewrite half <laughs> of a chapter after doing so. I tried not to do too much of that. Uh, the goal was to have a nice, simple, uh, what uh, Bert Bates referred to as a concrete example um, uh, something that, uh, the reader already sort of understands, uh, like for example, uh, in my chapter on hashes, uh, where we had to, uh, I use the example of counting votes because that's something that readers already knew how to do. Um, so you've got a bunch of, uh, uh votes in a ballot box, which, uh, in this case, take the place of names in a text file. And we needed to iterate through and, uh, increment a counter for each name that got encountered. That was a nice, simple program. It all fit on one page, and the reader already understood half of it. You're counting – you're incrementing a counter every time you match a name. So having a basic program to build everything else on top of was super important. Yeah.
1: With um, with this book being 500-something pages <laughs> – very exhaustive book that i can't imagine writing myself yeah. i'm kind of curious what uh what did you find to be the hardest topic to cover in the
2: oh, book definitely blocks definitely blocks yeah. and that goes back to my own experience learning ruby i, I learned from the pickaxe as i'm sure most folks did prior to Head First ruby coming along and um <laughs> I looked at the section on blocks and I was like, okay, I'm just going to go elsewhere in the book for a little while. Cause I don't really get this. And it was years before I really understood how to use blocks. I mean, I could, you know, uh, I could muddle my way through writing in each block. That was no problem, but I didn't really understand what was going on. And I certainly couldn't uh, write a method that uh, invoked a block uh, for a long time. So uh, the, in fact, that was a big part of the planning for the book was, okay, how are we going to give them a solid foundation for learning blocks? And how are we going to make it nice and easy and approachable when they do hit them?
1: You give me an example sort of of uh, one way that you felt you know comfortable explaining it. Because I agree that along with blocks and lambdas and procs and everything of the sort and all its little permutations, uh, I could totally see how someone new to Ruby can not necessarily totally grasp how to use it but um what what's sort of your now go-to way of explaining it uh obviously in a in a less uh, thorough way than the, the book is doing but
2: yeah because it is kind of hard to do in a nutshell i broke it yeah, down yeah, yeah. Into- Uh, And I would say that's my uh, way to make myself comfortable and my way to make the reader comfortable is I break it down into the tiniest possible bits. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had the encouragement of my editors to have uh, – take a page or two and acknowledge, hey, this is going to be freaking hard. Don't worry. We're going to guide you through it uh, nice and slow. Uh, So – did that to try and make the reader a little more comfortable, and then my example it's not my favorite because it's uh, very basic, but I just uh, included three code samples that had repeated code for a loop in them. I used a for loop, um, and uh, you know, it was repetitive code, it was boring, but that, um It kind of follows the whole uh, ethos I was trying to follow of make me care. I was trying to show how it was relevant to the reader uh, by showing all that repeated code. Okay, we've got these for loops. We've got this counter that you have to increment. You mustn't forget to increment the counter or you're going to have an infinite loop. Look how terrible this is. Look how repetitive this is. Now we're going to show you a loop using a block and look how much simpler it is. So we we introduce each to them that way, and we just break it down into the tiniest possible bits we can.
1: So I'm curious, how did you get started with either Ruby or programming or where you are now, what's what's the sort of uh, origin story of Jay?
2: I have always had a soft spot for scripting languages, because I got my start with uh, Perl back around 2000, and that let me build this big, complex screen scraping system for a travel industry company I was working for at the <laughs> time. I kind of automated myself out of a job there. Uh, but, <laughs> so, uh, But Perl was awesome. Uh, I know a lot of folks diss Perl because they don't like the way the syntax looks nowadays. I, I still love it uh i still have a soft spot for it and to me ruby is the natural successor to pearl it's cleaner and um uh, like pearl it's nice and flexible
1: awesome and so you you started using pearl and then was it just sort of the natural progression that made you want to go to ruby when it uh, sort of got a little bit more uh production attention or sort of what what made you want to switch over
2: i guess we could say that's how it worked actually i think i told the first person who tried to introduce me to ruby no i have pearl why would i want to learn that but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know pearl kind of started to fizzle uh around uh, uh 2005 2006 uh what Just because they had a lot of trouble getting Pearl 6 rolled out, which, by the way, it is available now, is my understanding. Um, But uh, that's maybe a few years too late. So, um, (laughs) yeah, Ruby, finally, I did realize was the natural next step.
1: Awesome. And and so if somebody picks up your book or is currently sort of on a uh, path to becoming a professional pro- programmer, which I'll basically just define as getting paid to code, uh, you know, what sort of uh, – what, what do you think are the biggest uh, – uh, lessons to learn or or tools to sort of over you know to 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 put in your arsenal um you know in your experience writing this book for for folks learning ruby but also you know professionally uh, we talk about that a fair bit on the podcast just you know what what do you need to know to actually go and now do this for cash uh, what do you think the you know the hardest part of that is, or, or what what would your advice be if someone were to ask you, "Okay, I did the book, uh, I, I built a, a small app for myself. Now, how should I go about?" You know actually applying this to to some you know uh, professional gig
2: well there's a couple different paths you could take and the most obvious one of most folks is to go on and learn rails because that's where 90 percent of the Ru- ruby jobs are nowadays yeah. i think we can all agree uh although uh, i personally like learning ruby as a nice solid foundation for uh starting with rails mm-hmm. um uh that's one possible two possible routes. It's not the route I followed. Um, like I say, I, uh, did use Pearl for kind of a skunk works project in my other job uh, uh, to do some automation. Uh, and personally, that's what I love having Ruby on hand for in my daily works uh, uh, work. If you, um, uh, if you need to parse a text file, uh, if you need to extract some data to do some uh, data analysis type stuff, uh, Ruby is fantastic for that. It's low ceremony and you can just have a quick script up and running uh, in a very short period of time or even a single line if you know how to use it from the command line. So that's – yeah, that's, I, yeah, that's I what
1: say, I'm like. Using that's, for. that's awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, like, e- e- even in your book, you do a great job of keeping it in Sinatra. It's, it reminds me of the um, – was it the Pickaxe book or one of the early Braille's books where it's like – I don't think Sinatra existed at the time, and so it was really – really simple like this is how you use cgi to answer a request or whatever Uh, it feels very it feels very good and simple to not necessarily even go too deeply into what sinatra is and what it does other than you can call it and and it's a way it's a way to answer a you know server request
2: Yep, because I wanted the reader to be able to impress themselves with what they were capable of. So I figured a Sinatra, uh, Sinatra app was a great way to do that. Uh, and I uh, I was being sneaky there. I did want to prep them for moving on to Rails, which I knew a lot of readers would inevitably do. This uh, Doing a Sinatra app seemed like a good way to do that.
1: Yeah, and so uh, similarly uh, to that, what... I noticed uh, towards the end of the book, you cover a lot about storage, but you end up using like YAML store as the back. And so I'd, I'd love to sort of hear what the reasoning was behind that uh, instead of, say, you know, I don't know, using SQLite or MySQL or something that I guess gets us a little closer to Rails.
2: Yeah, so you browse Stack Overflow or you browse the Treehouse forums and you just see people getting stuck all over the place with their database connections, uh, when they're at the really beginner level anyway. And that was something that I didn't have the spare pages to try and explain (laughs) and that I didn't want readers to have to worry about. YAML store was super attractive to me because it writes everything to a plain text file that the reader could just open in a text editor and inspect and and uh, really easily get a strong feel for how it was changing as they made new entries in their web app.
1: Yeah, I don't know that I've actually ever used YAML Store.
2: <laughs> I don't know that it's production quality. You certainly don't want to try and run Twitter on top of it. But <laughs> but if you're just trying to stand something up quickly, it's fantastic.
1: That's awesome. Very cool. Um. Yeah, I mean, I I... I'd love to hear anything else uh, around uh, your experience writing this, uh, whether through editing or – I've never personally written a book, but I feel like it's one of those things that uh, people always say – Man, I would really love to go write a book. Uh, you know, I think I have something to teach, and I'm going to write a book and I'm going to sell it on Gumroad or or whatever. Um, you know, what's sort of the experience like for you? Uh, presumably working with an editor and a publisher, uh, being a little bit different than self-publishing. But uh, was this your first book, or have you done this before?
2: This was my first book, so I actually don't know about the traditional wall of text approach. Yeah. to editing. Uh, this is this is more what I'm familiar with. Uh, if but I'm sure this applies to. Regular uh, non graphical books, as well. Uh, It's the writing experience is harder than you think. (laughs) This was this book was originally scheduled to take about one year to write, it wound up taking me a little over two, um, and just I had to agonize over every page layout, um, every choice of word. Uh, There was a lot of revising, a lot of revising, and I think that anybody who wants to write a really high quality book needs to be prepared to do that.
1: Yeah, I will say too uh because this is obviously an audio medium. I mean the every single page has has its own layout it would seem. <laughs> I mean, like, there's it's it's, it's not a standard book where it's like, I'm going to show you these three visuals where this one means a code sample, this one means a comment, and this one means something else. Uh, Every single one of these pages is completely different, basically.
2: Yep. And that was basically just dictated by the material um, that I had to teach at the time, as well as what would actually fit on the page. It got impressed upon me that it was very important to have all information that was relevant to understanding uh, for a topic to have all of that right on the two pages in front of the reader so that they didn't have to flip back and forth. So I would actually, in some circumstances, I would copy graphics from earlier in the chapter to the page um, that, the user, uh, that the reader was currently looking at uh, so that they would uh, not have to uh, flip back or strain their brain trying to remember what they had already learned. They could just glance over the page and see what they needed to refer to.
1: And so you mentioned moving from being an, uh, a developer uh, full time at Treehouse to now also being a teacher for Treehouse and doing their Rails work. What, I'm curious, what's your, what's been your experience working between these two mediums? You know, one is written where it's just sort of browsable by the person, however they'd like to use it. And Treehouse is, uh, you know, a video medium primarily. Um, where, you know, you go and watch a class or a, a small su- a section of a class, and then you can take a quiz or do an example or work through something. Um, I guess I'm curious, like, what what do you prefer personally, I guess? Or how do you see uh, through your learnings while writing this book, the video versus book versus podcast versus whatever, like how they all play together uh, to, to teach someone new to... Programming or new to Ruby, uh, how to how to get to work?
2: Well, we all prefer what we're familiar with, right? And uh, so, I'm definitely going to say that I prefer working in the book medium right now. I mm-hmm. actually have yet to go record my first videos with Treehouse. I've only been at the in the teacher position a couple weeks now. Yeah, I can tell you that I am going to. I uh, plan to bring as much of the style. That I learned writing headfirst Ruby as possible into my treehouse work, uh, I, th- with the general goal of making uh, it so that readers don't have to remember material from three videos ago to understand what's going on in the current video. Um, I, historically, in screencasts, there haven't been a whole lot of. hasn't been a whole lot of having the terminal and your editor side by side. I'm going to try and see if it's technically feasible to have everything you need on the screen in front of you at once. Is -hmm. this actually going to work in the video medium? Well, time's going to tell.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Um, Yeah, so I mean, uh, the book's out now, right? It is. And how would I go about uh, getting it?
2: You would head to Amazon.com and search for Head First Ruby. And by all means, look over the reviews there. Uh, first, if you're still trying to make your buying decision, at this point, they're still f- uh, fairly glowing. I got a 4.8 star average at this point. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty happy about it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've looked through the book, uh, and it's too long for me to have read it cover to cover. But I was reading a lot of different sections, and I definitely think that this is something, if you're looking for a book that's not... Uh, super dry uh, it's a, you know, it's funny uh, it's got a little bit of humor in it but it also works through everything and calls out those in your head questions uh, that I think most people have when they read code they go wait why is this like this and there's a call out right there that's usually explaining it and so um, if you're new to Ruby or you're listening to the podcast thinking uh, Ruby looks cool I'd love to get into it but I just don't know how and I don't want to necessarily uh, read one of the bible style uh ruby books i definitely think you should check this out because this is pretty cool
2: cool i love hearing that kind of stuff
1: yeah yeah this is awesome okay great well thanks jay we really appreciate you coming on um don't be a stranger release another book uh in two years and we'll talk
2: again <laughs> heck yeah sounds good to me thanks awesome. kyle yep
1: yeah so headfirst ruby check it out on amazon um i have you sean have you read any of the uh headfirst books
0: Are you familiar with the the sort of like brand around that? I kind of feel like, uh, so I am familiar with the brand around it and uh, you were gracious to do the interview and Jay was gracious enough to uh, be interviewed about it, but I'm going to admit they're not that that series is not my cup of tea. I have read one before. I think they're pretty good uh, intro books. I think they're they're I, I think they're well designed for their audience, but that audience is not me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I was, I was, uh, we. I think one of the things that you could like that's interesting for me from the book is not necessarily the content. While it, while it's well done, it's just I, you know, I feel like I have experienced a, a fair amount of it. Uh, it, but the it's sort of like the teaching style is both like playful, which you have to enjoy, but also just um sort of like just in time information. You know, like all the examples are annotated and whatnot, and so um, it's been interesting. W- one of the ones that uh, you know came up was the Head First uh, Design Patterns book, which I don't own, but I know I've I've read some snippets of, and so I wonder if that's a little bit better. But it's uh, the book's the book's pretty exhaustive. So if if you're uh, if you're a
0: want to be Rubyist um, and you're listening to the podcast, I definitely check it out. But, I found that um, part to be a little bit surprising, so I didn't read the entire book, um, but I I did. Uh, I did take a look at what Jay sent, and I went through the. I was going through the table of contents, and I read uh, the first uh, couple chapters, and I did not expect it to be as deep as it was. Uh, Especially given that the style is, is, I I think it's aimed at somewhat of a a relatively new to Ruby crowd. Um, If you just read that book, you and you really understood every page, you'd be relatively good shape about Ruby. I mean, I think you know if you hit a new uh, rails app yeah. and had to contribute to it i think you'd have a whole new world of things to understand but but uh as it relates to the language and the sort of primitives involved yeah. themselves I think you could do a lot worse than just reading that single book
1: yep i agree completely awesome well we'll see we'll see if we do more of this feel free to share feedback uh uh with me or Sean on uh, on Twitter if uh if this was interesting to you if doing a, the mini interviews was a cool uh was a cool idea. Uh we can see about doing more of that or less of that <laughs> as a, as as we try this out. That's
0: a good that's a good segue. So I let's talk for a couple minutes as we uh leave about the uh the sort of spin-off series that's coming up. Yeah. There'll be a whole uh there'll be a whole like preview episode that's coming out. But I've got this uh, podcast called the remote residency that I'm going to drop into this feed at least at first. And then it'll spin off into its own show also um, that I'm pretty excited about. Very different format from this one. A lot more table flipping. I think there's, there's some more table flipping. There's a lot more editing. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Much to the pleasure of some, I think, um, (laughs) But anyhow, I will, uh, I will, uh, we'll talk about it on a future episode and I've got the teaser that I think will be out between now and when our next episode, uh, comes out. But the very short version is that, uh, I have taken on, um, uh, a couple of what I'm calling residents, which are sort of like, um, uh, medium term apprentices, um, into a program called the remote residency, which is about giving a, a one year experience to a programmer that has some training and, um, pretty good skills, but isn't yet you know, sort of fully launched into their lead developer career to give them sort of a, an intensive work experience to learn what it's like and, and develop the skills to be successful at building and launching applications. Uh, so I've got, uh, two guys that you'll get to know well on the show that have joined the program so far. And the podcast is going to be all about that experience. So mostly first person accounts of every sort of interesting moment along the way. So I'm pretty excited.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to listen along too. I mean. Hearing a little bit about it from behind the scenes, I I definitely think this will be super interesting to you if you are sort of looking to make a leap in your career and you can listen along. Uh, Not necessarily to uh, uh, get skills transfer, but to hear from people who are trying to do the same thing that you are uh, as they go along. So, I mean,
0: there are, let's see, there's the preview episode and then. Uh, I think what would be the equivalent of two episode lengthwise, at least that are both recorded and basically edited. And so I've listened to it now kind of uh, trying to put myself into the, the listener role. And I actually think that it'll be a very good show for managers also, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. It, it, when I think it's quite easy when you are working on a team, I'd say either managers or just teammates, it's pretty easy when you're working on a team to forget that every other member of the team is as much a person as you are that has the same sort of feelings and thoughts that you do. And I mean, obviously you shouldn't forget that, but I I think people get in their own head quite a bit. And, uh, especially when you're in a manager role, you can get in your own, you, you can sort of forget just how important it is to consider where every team member is coming from every single day. And, uh, one thing that's very interesting about this podcast is that you, it it has so many candid moments of uh, Brian and Ben, the the two guys that joined the program to start with, sort of sharing how they're feeling that day about the given task. That if you're a manager, just listen, or a team member, listen to this podcast and know that every other member of every member of your team also has feelings like this. It won't be the same feelings, but they'll be the same sort of challenges. And uh, being more cognizant of that uh, daily and applying sort of that knowledge to the decisions you make about what feedback you give and what um, priorities you set and how you allocate work, et cetera, I think is very interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's a, I don't want to overpromise, but I think the podcast delivers on that point pretty well. Awesome. So I'm excited to share. I've never, I've never done a, a sort of heavily edited show before. And this would qualify as that. So it's it's been a very interesting uh, thing to watch. Coming coming soon to this feed. Yeah, yeah. Should be this week or next week. Awesome. Surely. All right. Well, that's it for me today. Anything else for you?
1: No, that's it. I'm off to the land of barbecue
0: and hipsters. Right. <laughs> well, enjoy. Uh, if uh, anyone wants to connect with me on Twitter, I'm barely known.
1: And I am K. Daigle.